0: Good morning beautiful people. This is Nube Brown, your host of Prison Focus Radio. Please excuse the abrupt ending of the song, but I need to air a very powerful piece that was gifted to me by the editor of El Tecolote. El Tecolote, the Spanish-English newspaper here in the Mission. This is a, episode 9 of a podcast Radio Teco. Um, very important piece of work on forced sterilization that needs to be aired today in honor of, um, of those women and also um, Mother's Day, um, an, an honoring of Mother's Day. We are going to preempt the, the reading of Satawan Antambu Jama'a's piece. We will get started from the beginning starting next week. Please take care in listening. This is incredibly painful, but so necessary to hear. Here we go.
3: Hello, and welcome to Radio Teco. Uh, my name is Johanna Miyaki, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by three uh, super powerful and intelligent women to talk about a really serious topic that may have some things that are difficult to hear. So please take care while you're listening we're going to discuss eugenic and forced sterilization, sort of um, a history, the past, the present, and where we're headed to in the future. Um, My first guest is Natalie Lira. She's an expert on eugenic sterilization, a member of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab, and author of the forthcoming book, Laboratory of Deficiency, Sterilization, and Confinement in California. Thank you for joining us today, Natalie. Thank
4: you for having me. It's an honor.
3: Uh, Kelly Dillon. Her testimony was key in helping California State Senate and then California Governor Jerry Brown pass the SB 1135 anti-sterilization bill into law. Kelly is uh, the founder and executive director of Back to the Basics Community Empowerment Organization in Los Angeles and serves as commissioner and board member of the Los Angeles Commission for Community and Family Services. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, Kelly. Um, and my final guest is Azide Shoshani. She's an advocate and lawyer. She is with the Project South Legal and Advocacy. Uh, she's their director of legal and advocacy um, and the past president of the National Lawyers Guild. She works has been working for more than 15 years in the South to protect human rights of immigrants. Project South advocates for the closure of ICE detention centers. Project South, one of the organizations that filed a complaint in September of 2020 that exposed medical abuse against women's bodies in the Irwin Detention Center and has worked on the release of survivors from the Irwin Detention, uh, Irwin County Detention Center, um, as well as others. I'm going to jump right in to this conversation. Again, a uh, reminder to our listeners that some of this uh, information in the conversation might be a little bit difficult to hear, so please take care while you're listening. Natalie Lira, can you start the discussion off with a brief overview of what is eugenic sterilization and its history and how it came to the U.S., Um, you know, the bad science around eugenics?
4: Sure, and again, I just want to thank you, Joanna, for inviting me and just say it's an honor to be here with Kelly and Azadeh. Um, So, Eugenics was um, essentially a late 19th century effort to um, harness what were uh, then pretty new genetic theories um, in an effort to kind of broadly improve society through reproductive control. So the science was established by English scientist and statistician Francis Galton, who was Basically obsessed with um, collecting data that would prove that some people were inherently superior and that others were inherently inferior, and so within with eugenics he posited that superiority and inferiority were hereditary, that they were basically passed through family lines, and so the idea was that. If You could kind of identify the people who had these inferior genetic traits and prevent them from reproducing, um, then society could be improved. And alternately, you know, people who were deemed to have like these superior genetic uh, traits should be encouraged to reproduce. So, the science um, of eugenics uh, really was effective in converting what were and still are social and structural problems like poverty, crime and immorality and turning them into individual biological problems. Um, And so it works to um, situate um, reproductive control as kind of this legitimate um, facet of social welfare and public health. And um, so this uh, theory in this what became a science which you know we look back at eugenics now and we see um, the flaws and the data collection and and the the faulty science but in in its day it was considered the the cutting edge of science right it was well respected taught in the best universities by leaders in different fields of education, um, psychology, medicine. And the science was really enticing to Americans, um, American eugenicists who were largely Anglo-American, middle and upper class women and men. And it was enticing because it basically fell in line with what they already believed about American society, which is that poor people, Um, people with disabilities, people who are racially or ethnically different uh, from them were inherently and biologically inferior, right? Um, It basically offered science and credence to um, the ideology of white supremacy. Um, And so uh, eugenicists were very successful in popularizing this theory. Um, and, And part of it is because it um, comes about during the again the turn of the 20th century. So we have this context of um, civil post Civil War racial violence, um, Jim Crow segregation, um, an influx of immigrants from supposedly undesirable states, um, undesirable um, Eastern and Southern European countries um, Mexican immigrants as well. And then you also have like this, um, changing economy. Um, so this shift from, uh, uh, this shift into like rampant industrialization, urbanization, which were the like structural issues that were causing poverty and, and things like that. Um, and so eugenics came in to the U S at a time when, um, the, middle and upper classes were looking for reasons um, for this kind of growth in poverty and, and for looking for ways to address it. And um, it also comes in during the progressive era, right, where this, there's this belief in science, um, there's this um, belief in the influence of government, and so eugenicists kind of were able to harness um, the scientific language This collection of of data that was deemed scientific and and supposedly objective, but that was largely influenced by already existing racist, classist, ableist, um, gendered ideologies and and, um, institute different policies. So some uh, eugenic policies included marriage restrictions, um, both racial marriage restrictions, but also um, restricting marriages from people who had, uh, between the quote-unquote no, normal people and people that had disabilities. Um, another um, kind of outcome of eugenics was the construction of these large-scale um, state institutions where people who were labeled physically or mentally defected the defective could be warehoused. Feeble-minded, right? Feeble-minded, right? Like with this, um, so this was a very popular, wide-ranging label, this notion of feeble-mindedness that kind of drew on ideas about intelligence um, that was based on these biased IQ tests that supposedly measured intelligence, but that was applied really to people who were poor, certainly people that had disabilities um, but also women who were engaging in you know sex outside of marriage or having children outside of marriage, people who were engaging in activity that was deemed criminal could be labeled feeble-minded, right um, confined in these institutions where they were you know segregated from the public and prevented from reproducing right um, and then of course, uh, well, we also have um, immigration, so, the 1926 Johnson-Reed Act that placed quotas that really limited immigration from these undesirable European countries and from um, was um, really pushed by eugenicists. Was designed by eugenicists, and then of course we have um, sterilization, right? And so, while, you know, we recognize today that it was faulty science. Um, it was very popular. Um, and had the, these wide-ranging impacts and really entered the public um, thought, right? Um, so, so that's kind of eugenics in a nutshell. <laughs> right,
3: not, not easy
4: to put in a nutshell, but you did a really <laughs> concise
3: job. So, and I think what's important too for people to understand, uh, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1927, uh, Buck v. Bell because this is really a critical point where it it enters the legal arena, which, correct me if I'm wrong, still has technically not been overturned. So while there's laws around the country in different states, there's a precedent on the books at the highest court in our nation. Talk a little bit about the case of uh, Carrie Buck, Buck v. Bell, and what those implications were legally and how it sets us up
4: on this, horrible trajectory yeah so um so the first um eugenic sterilization law is passed in indiana in 1907 um and there were some subsequent laws but obviously people had concerns um and you know people realized pretty quickly that like forcing people to be sterilized Uh, likely represented a violation of their constitutional rights. And so um, Buck v. Bell becomes this really tragic um, farce of a Supreme Court case because uh, what happens is that eugenicists are looking for a way to make eugenic sterilization legal. And so um, they find that way through Carrie Buck, who is this seventeen-year-old, um, who uh, has this very uh, difficult history, so she uh, Carrie Buck grows up in uh, a very impoverished in in Virginia. Her mother Vivian Vivian becomes a single parent. She struggles with poverty. She winds up having to place Carrie into um, uh, foster care when she's four. Um, Vivian herself is. Um, you know, charged with prostitution. She's labeled with this a diagnosis of people-mindedness is committed to Virginia's um, Lynchburg colony for um, epileptics and people labeled people-minded. Um, and eventually Carrie winds up um, being placed um, as a foster charge with a family and, um, and when she's 17, a nephew of, of the family um, rapes her and she becomes pregnant and the family doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Um, they commit her to the same institution that her mother is committed to, the Lynchburg Colony. Um, and uh, the superintendent of the Lynchburg Colony, um, Albert Pretty determines that Carrie is like the quintessential of Kate's for sterilization, for eugenic sterilization. You know, her family's poor. There's this history of immoral conduct, right? Her mother's struggling. uh, Her mother's a prostitute. She becomes pregnant, very young. And so the uh, Purdy essentially conspires with one of the, biggest eugenicist in the country, um, Harry Laughlin, to, you know, basically set Carrie up. So they, they apply to have Carrie sterilized, and then they assign a, a lawyer to her to, to uh, file an appeal. And then they work the appeals process up to the Supreme Court. Um, and it's it's a farce. Um, you know, there's no real defense in Carrie's um, case. Uh, she has really no say. She had her child at the Lynchburg Colony, and Harry Laughlin observes the child and determines that the child is also feeble-minded. So there's this like generational proof that there's these three generations of feeble-minded people. Um, And the Supreme Court decides in favor of eugenic sterilization and um, determines essentially that, um, you know, given this example of Carrie Buck and her mother and her daughter, um, that compulsory sterilization for people that are labeled unfit was a legal and legitimate way to protect public health and welfare. And so... You get this, um, what becomes an infamous quote from Justice uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who says, you know, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And then um, they write in the opinion that the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination was broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes.
3: And if, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, I think Carrie Buck never sees her daughter again after she no. gives birth. And lives out her time in that same colony in Virginia with her mother. And yeah, and yeah so you know, B. Buck v. B. Bell paves the way for eugenic sterilization to make a shift from an institutional setting to a prison setting. Documented in *Belly of the Beast*, she's a mother of two in her early 20s. She's uh, forcibly sterilized when she's incarcerated at the Central California Women's Facility in Chatsworth, California. She was told she was going in for uh, surgery of ovarian cysts, I believe. Right? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Kelly. And then later, just uh, learns that she's been given a hysterectomy. So, Kelly, tell us about your experience at how this all sort of unraveled and what made you come forward as like that must have been a really scary and horrifying like thing to do but how brave right and um, we can talk a little bit more about what that led to but tell us about that tell us about how that all
2: happened yeah so um first of all thank you joanna for inviting me here especially among Natalie and as a day. Thank you so much for it. Because I've been in different arenas around these women and your names have come up. And so it's a pleasure to, you know, just be in this setting once again with you. I feel honored. I feel honored and I feel safe. And that's the most important thing. Me as a survivor, not only do I feel honored, I feel safe. Thank you so much. So as you mentioned earlier that um, my experience, was documented in the film, Belly of the Beast, who was um, produced by Erica Cohen and um, Angela Tucker. And so, um, they were, where that film takes place is kind of like the last 10 years in this fight mm-hmm. after coming out of prison and beginning the fight for not only my own justice, but for the justice of um, other women that are incarcerated or in state facilities in the state of California. Um, when I, I was 24 years old when I was diagnosed with initially was an abnormal pap smear, right? So we do, they still give us a medical care for those who may not understand how or what happens in um, prison. I might have to just, you know, kind of walk you through the fact that there is some level of medical care that is, that does happen for women and men in um, behind prison walls. And so, and part of that was, especially if you are a long-termer, in which I was a long-termer, I was sentenced to 15 years behind defending myself from my abuser. And so, we are entitled to, uh, long-termers and lifers are entitled to um, preventative care. When well, they say preventative care, was gynecological care and different things like that. And so, I had a, a, a pap smear that was up. And so from the pap smear, it stated that I had abnormal cells. And um, as I even say the word abnormal cells, really, and I'm pretty sure as day can uh, relate to what was happening in the Georgia detention centers, which is that that's exactly also what some of the women were being told, that they had abnormal pap smears. And when I actually heard some of the testimonies, um, initially, I had called Angela and Erica and Cynthia, who was, um, the attorney who helped me at the time, I was like, oh my God, this is exact, they're saying the exact same thing that I said, you know, 15 years ago about like how I was, how I was introduced or either set up to even receive any kind of medical care or surgery. So because of the abnormal past smears, and then, uh, and because of that, I was, agreed to a cone biopsy, in which for those, I don't know who's listening, who knows what a cone biopsy is, but it's basically where they go into the cervix and take pieces of tissue like a biopsy in order to detect whether there's cervical cancer or maybe possibly uterine cancer. So, of course, when I was told that that's what they were checking for, my my mind just went into, I'm 24 years old. I'm sensitive, you know, inside of prison walls. Uh, Like, I don't want to have to deal with cancer either. So I consented to it. Um, And then I was giving a uh, ultrasound. And then the ultrasound, they stated that they found possible cysts. And so I was like, okay, let's go for the surgery. Um, But when I, what happened for me is that, Joanna, to correct you, I did not receive a hysterectomy like so many other women have, but what they did for me and which we later found out, which also, you know, you'll see in the film is that they actually, he went in performing a sterilization surgery on me, like a tubal ligation surgery when there was supposed to be only a biopsy to figure out whether if I had cancer or not. So from there on, I had the fight. It's hard for people to, um, understand that not only are we have limited access to medical privileges or whatever, but we also have limited access to our medical records. So when I came out, I was sent back to general population in which I'm detached from the medical experience that I just had, as well as those who perform it, because it's not like I have a relationship with my doctor or the surgeon or the medical um, clinic it's somebody who was contracted to come in, do a specific thing, and that's it. So there's not even really a time to, of, of consultation or anything else like that. So from from moving from there is that I was trying to figure out what was happening with me, and then the story kind of you know moves forward with me fighting, um, writing inmate complaints, um, asking for requests, to figure out what was going on with me and that never happened and so that's where justice now the agency at the time that was working to assure that women that were incarcerated who had chronic um uh, diagnosis such as cancer of uh, hepatitis c and hiv positive uh, women were receiving adequate medical care or hospice care or either giving the um, the right for uh, compassionate release. And so even though I, that, I didn't fit none of those criterias, I still reached out to Cynthia Chandler, who was at the head of Justice Now at the time, to say, hey, listen, I think something happened to me. No one's saying anything. I'm no longer experiencing um, my menstrual cycle. Um, I'm 24. I'm starting to... Uh, starting to have um, hot flashes and all these other things and no one's telling me what's going on can you help me and that's when she stepped in as a social justice advocate um for us behind the walls and she was already kind of labeled as a rock star for us that someone who really fought for us who really wanted to advocate for the rights of those who were vulnerable and um or had disabilities or uneducated and so she did that for me and we were able to uh, actually get a, a court order in order to for them to release over my medical records and then um from there i was told um through cynthia as she read back to me the findings that i had been intentionally sterilized but just to move a little further what I I don't know initially what I would have done um, if it were just me alone. Um, What I had begun to see when I recognized the evil, the evil practices, the heinous intentions that had been done to me. It it felt isolated at the time until I, I was sitting on the yard and I began to watch other women other young women, African-American, Indian, um, poor white, or white women who had repeated offenses of drug abuse and everything. I kept seeing them come back um, with these abdominal surgeries. And I kept asking them, what, 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 what was going on with you? They said, oophorectomy. Um, they removed my ovaries. They removed my uterus. They said I had abnormal cells. They said i had abnormal cells they said i had an abnormal pap smear and i was like hold up i was like how is it that we all came in here just three or four years later giving birth to children having medical um you know care on the street because it's like you say it's this stigma that criminal people don't go to like you know we had a lot of women and men that (laughs) go to prison sometimes are there, especially long-termers and lifers, they're there because of a isolated situation that just got to the extreme. Most of the long-termers and lifers are first-time offenders, most of them, you know what I'm saying? And so how is it that we had these lives and we had medical care on the street, you know, at home, but yet still we get here, now we got all of these um, life-threatening conditions that require these very um, intrusive and um, surgeries, right? So I immediately got back on the phone, and when I was able to call um, Justice now, and I told him, I said, "Hey, listen, I think something else is going on here, and but I need to figure out a strategy on how to um, to get there." Get the information that's needed to figure it out. And we begin to organize, in which you'll see in detail in the, the film Belly of the Beast. And so just moving forward from there, after that I got pissed off. I got angry, you know? And so once I got angry, you know, I had got angry and I was like, oh no, they just can't get away with this. But at the time we hadn't had enough evidence to walk everybody else through it, and then so many women were intimidated by the system we were in, um, scared of retaliation. Um, they wanted—they had been incarcerated for some time. They wanted to go home to the children that they did have, the family that was waiting for them. And so they felt intimidated by coming forward. But I had to move forward on my own. And I end up um, getting enough evidence and with, through investigations and death depositions and everything else like that, I was able to move forward to sue. But um, what, how I am where I am now, and I don't know if maybe you want to, you know, lead into that discussion a little later, but is that I lost my case. <laughs> and I lost my case based on um, statute of limitation. And um, which is that they said that upon the time of it happening, I, my my, limit, my statute of limitation had ran out, even though I, as an inmate, had no access to the medical records and we had totally proven that the information itself was being held for me. But I was also being, um, I was also in a, I had a jury and had a trial that was in a county that the prison system itself kept it running it kept the industry flowing whether if it was through medical through education through corrections or food pr- pr- uh, food produ- producing right and farming and which is in fresno so i had no opportunity to really um have a fair case and so from there it started another fight and so um but i just want to say that it it it, it is difficult for me, I, I promised myself, so this, I'm doing this because this, Natalie is as a day and it's you, Joanna. I said <laughs> I was not going to tell this story no more. The only reason why is because I have poured out my heart and soul. I have poured out the details and the process on the film. And the consistent retelling it was consistently re victimizing me because of the fact that we had not come to a place of full justice just yet. Right. But at the same time, I had to look at the fact that I have been chosen for this story. Right. And um, and so therefore, I, I just I needed to tell it in a way in which I can take the power back from it. And in and, and telling it does not, um, you know, utterly take me through a place of being destroyed again. And so um, so as we move forward, um, I'm going to talk about the work that we're doing. And the work that has been done, the work we're doing, and what, and what we're now trying to um, do for the future survivors and the historical survivors that Natalie spoke about from the 1920s up into the 1970s, what we're trying to do for them. That, you
3: know, and it is interconnected, and that's why I wanted to tell all three of these stories and then talk about the progress, the fight, the movements. So um, I'm going to segue to Azadeh for, for a moment also. So more than 40 women submitted to testimony um, claiming abuse and alleging they went, underwent invasive and unnecessary procedures while detained at the ICE uh, center, detention center in Irwin in Georgia. Um, these allegations came to light after a shocking whistleblower report submitted on behalf of a former nurse at the facility, Don Wooten, uh, the report alleged that there was an alarmingly high number of hysterectomies performed on Spanish-speaking women. These were concerns from Don Wooten and other nurses at the Irwin Detention Center, and these women didn't understand the procedures that were being performed on that. So again, deception, um, uh, using the power distance, right, to, to the intimidation to keep your mouth shut because these women have something at stake also. They they want to get out. They maybe, you know, want to uh, have a pathway to citizenship. In your case, um, Kelly, it's these women that they're going to keep quiet and not make any waves because they're hoping to get out and get back to their families or, you know, re- put together some pieces of their life. So, Azadeh Shoshani, um, can you talk a little bit about Don Wooten's uh, story and and how that came to be that the south project was able to help her and also the other survivors of these forced sterilizations and maybe some um, insight into what's happening at the other ice detention centers
1: Uh, again i also wanted to thank you johanna for having us and yeah and it's definitely an honor to be um, with all of you and and thank you kelly um, for sharing your uh, for sharing your account really appreciate it, and thank you also, Natalie, for lending your expertise to this discussion. Um, it's really important. So, um, you know, we had been documenting conditions at the Irving County Detention Center for a long time, uh, including the treatment of women when it came to reproductive rights. Um, so, you know, we had documented basically lack of reproductive health care um, and lack of, you uh, prenatal care for pregnant women, and also just the fact that women were, you know, immigrant women at this corporate-run detention center were um, subject to dehumanization, and just, you know, one example of that, women were uh, being given used underwear for a number of years, um, and, um, you know, leading to um, rashes, infections, um, and, you know, we kept bringing this up to the attention of the warden and the you know, the people who ran the facility, and they just did not pay any attention. It just didn't register as a concern. Which you know, I think the only way that this would happen is if you think that you know, um, is if you have um, basically dehumanized um, the detained population. Um, and so um, you know, given the concerns during the pandemic, we are staying in touch and in you know, regular contact with. Um, with the um, detained immigrants inside, including the women. And so we um, you know, had decided to put out this complaint in um, September of 2020. And then over the summer, we were also hearing from women about um, these um, you know, gynecological procedures, which were done without full and informed consent, and in some cases amounted to forced realizations. And then at the same time, somebody... Um, put us in touch with Ms. Wooten, who um, is um, and, you know, was a nurse at the Urban County Detention Center. And so we talked to her. She was a whistleblower. We talked to her. And so she corroborated some of the accounts that we're hearing from the women. And so it felt um, like, you know, really urgent for us to put out this information to the public um, as soon as possible. Um, And, you know, I'm glad that the complaint that we filed really opened the, additional women from all over the world to come forward and talk about what has happened to them. Um, and it's just, you know, the thought that keeps going through my mind of two things. First of all, you know, if it hadn't been for the courage of um, the whistleblower Ms. Don the detained women themselves, and you know, this process of documentation and exposure, um, you know, it's, it's very clear to me that they would have still been sending women to Dr. Amin. Um, and you know, ICE knew about this as far back as 2018, and yet they didn't do anything, right? Um, and, and I mean, to the contrary, once the you know, once the complaint came out, they went on the defensive mode, um, and they did everything to cover their own tracks uh, by deporting the survivors and the witnesses to um, to the to the medical abuse. Um, And so, you know, it was really um, the team of advocates and lawyers and um, organizers who were able to basically, you know, through word of mouth, establish contact with women um, all over the world and gather um, and document the accounts. But then the other thing is, you know, um, there could still be more women out there somewhere around the world who suffered um, while detained at this detention center and will never have the opportunity to talk about what happened to them Um, and, you know, let alone receive a measure of redress while living with the lifelong damage to their spirit and their bodies. Um, And so currently the lawsuit is pending. Um, So there was a class action lawsuit, as you mentioned, that was filed in December on behalf of the survivors of medical abuse. Uh, one piece of good news is that all known survivors of medical abuse at Irvine have now been released. Of course, you know, a number were deported. Um, and if it weren't for Congress and, um, and lawyers are stepping in, more women would have been deported as well. Um, and, you know, but, but, you know, the unfortunate thing is that uh, Irving is uh, still open. Right. I mean, it would have been an easy thing for the Biden administration to do to go ahead and shut this place down as one of their first acts in office. Um, And yet they haven't done that. And they still continue to deal with private prison corporations where we know that their chief motivation is money and profit. Well, and
3: so to that point, like it's certainly wonderful news that these women were released from Irwin. But are there other detention centers that could be operating under you know the same um, sort of guidelines of keeping people quiet and that they don't you know they're notorious for not allowing access to the outside world, whether it be media, their family, advocates, anyone so this very well could be continuing, say in another ice detention center, and what do we you know as the legislation winds its way through? <laughs> The, the course that it has to take, what can people do, how can they stay informed, how can they um, express their desire for the Biden administration to take
1: some steps? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the issue of retaliation is key. I mean, so I talked about deportations, but even, you know, even uh, aside from the deportations, whenever somebody started speaking up about the conditions, um, the facility Again, the private prison corporation, uh, La LaSalle that runs this place, engaged in immediate retaliation. So, you know, last spring, we had a group of women talking about the lack of protection against COVID. And instead of uh, providing them the protections that they needed... Um, The guards went ahead and placed them in solitary confinement, which, you know, as we know, poses um, extreme emotional damage and mental health damage um, for for people.
3: Right. And these are refugees. We have to remind ourselves, these are not. um, These are people that came here to seek asylum in most cases. And this is is how they're being treated. So I'm, I'm wondering what all of you think about you know, since we've given this deep dive into the history, into the ways that it's evolved, what are the what are the lessons learned and what is
1: the path forward? What can people mm-hmm. do? What should we be looking for? Yeah. So just um, I mean, I would like to mention in terms of what people can do. I mean, one of the worst things that people can do right now is to be complacent. Um, which, you know, is a really unfortunate attitude that, um, you know, I think a lot of progressives have assumed and, you know, to the extent that people are jumping to the defense of the Biden administration, you know, this is not about partisan politics. You know, people are dying. (laughs) People are dying in these detention centers and prisons, you know, regardless of who's in office. Um, These are human rights violations that are happening in these places. And, you know, we need to keep their feet to the fire. These are people whom we we have elected as the people. We have put these people in office. We have to hold them accountable. Um, And so the way to do that, right, um, so, I mean, one way is to put pressure on your member of Congress. Um, You know, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. These immigrants are in the custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The buck stops with them. And guess where they get their funding? Congress. Congress is the agency that funds ICE. Um, And so, you know, let's keep pressure on Congress, ask them to go ahead and uh, defund ICE, um, and to go ahead and uh, shut down the Irving County Detention Center. Um, And I would say, you know, as an abolitionist organization, Project South does not believe in um, incarceration of any human being. So... Um, I think educating ourselves more about um, sort of what abolition entails, both in terms of abolition of you know prisons um, and also the police. In light of the, you know, I mean we are reminded of it on a daily basis in terms of police violence against you know black and brown people and the killings of you know black and brown people. And so I think uh, there's really need for more public education on the abolitionist model. Um, and the fact that, you know, police are, and, and prisons are inherently dangerous and dehumanizing institutions.
3: Let's talk about progress. Let's talk about reparations. Let's talk about change. Tell me, tell me about the work that you're doing Uh, Kelly um, or the work that's being done and Natalie, uh, if you can share some light about, shed some light on
2: what's happening, maybe there's legislation, things like that Okay, Thank you so much Um, and thank you for that question and giving me the opportunity to share where we're at right now today So um, Back to the Basis Community Empowerment is the organization in which I founded Um, I have, it's a small organization it's four strong, strong uh, community violence intervention specialists in which are educated on so many different levels from um, from anger management to um, trade electronics and uh, music and, and just so many different things that we are gifted with. And we are all formerly incarcerated. And so that's the good thing about it, is that we are all a team that is formerly incarcerated um because uh, we know what not just at risk uh, community members are like but we know for those and what's needed for those who are proving risk but what back to the basis community empowerment is doing now is that we're really at the forefront of the reparations movement and the legislative uh, push not only to overturn um, Bug versus Bell, because we're standing behind our um, all of our sisters in the fight and our brothers and sisters in the fight of um, trying to overturn that that um, that law. But we're also educating the community. So I do a lot of educational workshops, impact sessions, healing circles. Um, in the, in the state of California. So I collaborate with agencies from, um, from Oakland to Sacramento to San Diego um, in order to talk about what does reproductive, um, not only justice, but reproductive oppression. And what does it look like? And how does it show up in our uh, institutions, whether if it's at our community clinics? Um, how is it showing up in our public school systems? Because you'll be surprised as to um, some of the um, some of the tactics that is being pushed upon our um, young people of color, our young women of color um, in the in the public school systems when they're offered certain types of birth control. Um, With um, and I don't want to really kind of go into it, but I do because you you talked about how are these things showing up? How do we identify? Um, how these eugenic practices are pretty much creeping into other systems right and, and, and in in other entities that is uh when we when, when we are fighting to um to shut it down in one area it rears its ugly head in, in another system and it's like we're we're playing whack-a-mole right <laughs> I was it's,
3: just thinking the same thing right, but I
2: just right. we're, we're playing whack-a-mole with racism and discrimination and um and um, genocidal uh, sterilizations and stuff like that. So, And that's what's happening, so like I, I have to talk. Now I have to talk, I can't take anything for granted. Now I have to talk to high school students about how, even if it's something that's subtle is that when you're expressing these things to your doctor um, and getting reproductive care or, or gynecological care, how are you being made to feel? How, are you understanding what's being asked of you uh, do you understand the medication and why did you choose those like did they even talk to you about the different types of birth control options that you have and instead of them just maybe pumping out a a, a particular prescription <laughs> you know saying for um financial gain that they are able to um uh, Pump out this particular prescription. So we have to look at all those types of things in our, um, systems. And so that's what Back to the Basics does. It's like we, we, we are also, uh, we do gang intervention, we do reentry, we do, uh, parenting, different types of little workshops here and there. But, but our main fight, which is the fight that I'm in, is to, um, now, that's our way. That's our way of combating, um, in this social justice fight for racial and gender and just all types of um, advancing social justice and, and equity on so many different levels. And so while we have um, we have our community and our family members that is fighting for um, abolition or fighting for police um, brutality to cease and murders to cease as they're fighting for um, gender um, equal pay. It's like that is our area because right now we're at a time, we're at a, such a president time, a president time of where we have racism by the bullhorns. So it's like now we're fighting with it. We're in, we're in the ring, we're fighting like head on. Now it's like in every other area. And so that's the reason why our nation as, as, still as beautiful as our nation is, why it is such at an unrest. Like we are not at rest right now because we're trying to tear these systems down. And as as the day said, is that this is not a time to become complacent. We have to continue fuel the fire. We have not in a way where we agitate a situation where it's becoming peace or that we see solutions and compromise is and uh, reconciliation is being made. But meaning that when we when we recognize that we. Just because we are making progress in one area, we cannot feast in another area. You get what I'm saying? It's like we have to continue on. And so that's what our contribution is. And so, um, we, so I just wanted to give an update that we actually uh, made it through the public safety. So we just had two hearings in which we had a public safety hearing for the, the, the bill um, eight, which is AB 1007 in the state of California. Um, In order to grant reparations for historical and modern day sterilization survivors in the state of California, we passed the public hearing section. We passed the um, judiciary uh, appropriation, I think, time. But here's the problem. The problem comes in when it's time to, and which why we, our bill has died three times in the past, is because it's the budget part, right? And so I need to, uh, need, people need to understand it's not just about, oh, we're going to pay these survivors and, and that's the way we'll hush them up. It ha- it's, it's, it's more to that. What California, what we believe at this time that California has failed to do is grant the budget because the budget not only um, gives financial compensation to historical and, and those that we know that sterilized, but it also creates a committee that has to notify unknown survivors that those that ha- that they didn't even know that they were sterilized and that they went on and that they were intentionally and forcibly sterilized so it exposes their hidden victims okay and that's the one thing that they do not want so you have another 500 women that will be notified that these things have happened to them and so that, that is so to grant the budget is to grant that. And then also and once the, and also it would give a monument um, in the state of California a recognized monument that honors the survivors. And so it's not just about um, the money. And so a lot of times people think reparations is always about money. It's not about just, it's not about money. it's about sometimes the acknowledgement of the wrongdoing that was done. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and, and so we're saying, California, if you really are the liberal state that you claim to be, or if you really at the forefront of, of equality and social justice that you state to the rest of the world, then why haven't you taken these opportunities to right the wrongs that have been blatantly in front of you? And the film, Belly of the Beast, does that.
3: Absolutely, that was a lot of information, so powerful. And I wanted to touch on something that you said, Kelly, um, that struck me uh, the same way that I think um, Black and uh, people of color, parents of children that are are, um, Black and, and children of color, have conversations about their sons maybe having police interactions. they're having these conversations with their daughters about advocating for their health care right about insisting that they understand everything that's being told to them suggested to be done to them medication-wise super super powerful um and Natalie Lita if I can ask you to connect some dots from springboarding off of what Kelly was talking about that education piece when she talked about getting into the high schools you're um, in a university system teaching um, Latina, Latino women's studies has this uh, topic, you know, how does uh, how is that in the curriculum, maybe looking towards high school, you know, before they get to college, is that a conversation that is happening in the academic world? And also I think connecting that, connecting the dots to racism, I think is a really important point that we have to make here, right? Cause this is an evolution and a tool of um, hiding racism,
4: right? Yeah, and and I, and, you know, I think you're spot on with that. You know, we like one thing that eugenics really did was kind of legitimate, legitimize with science the I, like core ideas of white supremacy. Um, so you know, and I want to thank Kelly for. You know, talking about all the amazing work she has been doing, and like the exciting um, work that is being done with the reparations bill, and and I agree that like this you know, it is about the mon- It's not just about the monetary compensation, although that is absolutely warranted. You know, like in a capitalist society, like yes, that is has a lot of currency, but it also is about this education piece. And um, I think it's really important. um, And this is something that like I try to work through and um, we try to think about with the in the sterilization and social justice lab is like how to tell these stories that both expose like the real violence, but also kind of honor the people that this happened to and um, not make these like easy victim, um, innocent victim, um, you know, evil perpetrator narratives that really, you know, don't make, make it so that we have this, like, historical narrative of progress, like, you eugenics is over, we no longer believe in this, and, like, these other, you know, occurrences are just kind of the result of biased doctors, which sometimes that is the case, right? Like, I think, you know, with the ICE detention center um, uh, case, you know, this doctor, you know, was obviously engaging in these really horrible practices in the women's prisons, right? Kelly, you have this doctor who had this like really horrific belief that he was doing the right thing for the public, you know he, he was like, I'm you know, I'm doing these women a favor and I'm doing the public the favor, right? And yes, there are these individuals, but those beliefs are also like ingrained in our institutions and in, in schools, like you were saying, Kelly, right? In the public, in the health care system, um, and so I think definitely, you know, education in the high school system would be warranted, right, for, and and I think, you know, Kelly brought up um, the reproductive justice framework, and I think, like, maybe, like, learning that framework is also really powerful, because it, you know, it asserts that every person, you know, has this right to not have children using the contraceptive, you know, option of their choice has the right to have children and has the right to raise their children in safe um, and supportive environments. Right. And it's, you know, really, uh, uh, grounds the framework in human rights, social justice, and the belief that everybody has sexual and bodily autonomy should have that. Right. And so like, if we have that, if we start from that framework, then like, you know, it's easier to see um, how conditions of confinement in prisons, in detention centers violate those rights for people um, or create the conditions where, you know, those rights can be violated. Um, And, you know, I think it also pushes us in the conversation for reparations too, because it's like, Acknowledgement is so important. Monetary reparations are 100% warranted. But it's also like getting us, the education piece gets us to a point where we have start having conversations about how we prevent abuse, which for me should be kind of like the minimum, like sterilization shouldn't happen, should be a minimum. Um, And then helps us move into a conversation around like, what would it look like if we actually supported the families and the reproductive choices and the reproductive options of people who have traditionally been targeted for this practice. Like what would it look like if the state took up a program to support the reproductive um, behaviors, desires, family-making practices of, you know, black communities, Latino communities, immigrant communities, like, you know, when do we get to that point? And so I think the reproductive justice framework helps like push us there. And like, it's not one or the other, you know, it it is also about like learning about, like you were saying, Kelly, you know, learning about oppression and histories of oppression, like um, trying to figure out how to like move, really move us forward.
3: That is, um, yeah, like I, I hesitate to leave it there because there's so much more to say, but this has been a fascinating conversation, a powerful conversation. I want to tell our listeners to please visit uh, org and click on the Radio Techo page for more information on our guests today. I want to thank Natalilita, uh Kelly Dillon, and Azadeh Shidhashani um, for their important work, um, for coming here today and sharing all of this knowledge and experience. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Uh, to our listeners, you can listen to past episodes and give us your thoughts on our show today or uh, share ideas for your shows when you uh, log in to our website or you can subscribe to Radioteco wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johanna Miyaki. Thank you for listening. And again, thank you all for uh, your incredible work and for being here today.
0: In honor of motherhood, in honor of life, in honor of coming together and shared humanity. I wish you the best day forward, and we will see you next week. I love you. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.